Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24, this is the holy, inerrant word of God. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought up bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing for what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Last week, we had mentioned how easy it is to become distracted by the world, and we saw that in the life of Lot as he was distracted by the world and taken away by Sodom when Sodom was conquered by these four kings who came to this valley and conquered the five kings. And this week, I want to go ahead and kind of pick up on that theme a little more this week and look at the text and look at how Abram is focused in this text, and it keeps him from wandering from the way and from giving in to a kind of distraction that the world offers. There's much to learn from Abram's life, and I want to do this in this context. I think much, and I would argue almost all of the exhaustion that you and I experience in this world comes as a result of not focusing upon God and what God has promised and what He is to us. And I think there is much to learn from the way that Abram focuses in this text. When I was in third grade, I remember being at a doctor appointment with my mom, and I remember my doctor taking aside my mom and explaining to her that her son had a vision problem, that I saw doubles. Now, I didn't know that I saw doubles. I had just always seen doubles, so it just seems normal to me. Uh, but it was relayed to my mom and I that he sees doubles. He sees two of everything. And so we began all of these eye exercises to try and strengthen the muscles in my eyes and began all of the prescription glasses when the muscle strengthening didn't work. And I've also had multiple surgeries to try and correct my eyes so I don't see doubles. You would say, why go through all that effort? Isn't it great to see double? If you see two good things, you get double the good things. And the answer is, is because it's exhausting. When you can't focus, it takes a toll upon your mind and takes a toll upon your body. 
And what is true physically is also true spiritually. We see that Lot Lot wandered away from the, the path because he was drawn to Sodom. Well, Abram here has received blessing upon blessing. And as that blessing comes into his life, it can equally distract and cause him to lose his focus upon God. Success breeds temptations, even spiritual success. But Abram maintains the right focus. Three things that he focuses on here in combating what I would say is corresponding pride that often causes us to lose our focus, all peace. He focuses on God's provision, he focuses on God's plan, and he focuses third on God's priority, God's provision, God's plan, and God's priorities. And by focusing on God's provision, he combats pride of performance. By focusing on God's plan, he combats pride of place. And by focusing on God's priorities, he combats pride of presumption. So first, I want to look at focusing on God's provision combats pride of performance. Provision combats pride of performance. In our text, Abram has just returned from conquering these four kings. He no doubt could be celebrated as one of the great military triumphs in the history of humanity. It is right up there with Agincourt and Midway. Here's Abram who set off with just a few men. He is no great general and he has no great army and yet he defeats the great king Ketelamer from the east along with three other kings that he had come with and conquered five kings there in the area. And now he returns after this victory with the spoils of, of war to this land that was promised to him. And when he arrives, two kings come out to meet him. You think, here is a man who has every reason to boast. He has every reason to be proud. No doubt, as he set off with only 318 men of his household, the people around him would have jeered and said, do you think you stand of chance? Even our kings couldn't defeat them. And yet he comes back having defeated them and bringing back everything that was stolen. And now kings come out to greet him. He returns home a victor. The scene takes place somewhere outside the city of Sodom. Or, I'm sorry, outside the city of Salem, what we would call the city of Jerusalem today. And one of the kings, that king of Salem, comes out. He is quite a mysterious figure, one of the most mysterious in all of the Scriptures. We're told that his name is Melchizedek. It's a name that is composed of two words, Melech and Sedek, or king and righteousness. He is the king of righteousness, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 7 of that epistle. But he's not only a king of righteousness, the writer of Genesis goes on here to tell us that he's also a priest of God. And that's astounding that right here in the midst of these pagan Canaanite people that God has preserved knowledge of himself in their presence. It's astounding. But he's not the only king that's mentioned here in the text. 
The author of Genesis wants us to see the stature Abraham has reached. Abraham is defeated. The great king, Ketelaomer, and the kings who were with him, we're told in verse 17. The king of Sodom went out to meet him, we're told in the same verse. And they're meeting in Sheve, that is the king's valley, we're told in the second half of verse 17. And then we have the king of Salem in verse 18. Kings are everywhere in this text. Except Abram is no king. But he's been provided for because he is a servant of the king. And Abram and Melchizedek both know this is God's provision. They know it. There's no place for pride in Abram as his head is lifted up with kings because this is God's provision. Melchizedek, the priest, king, says this. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Some of your Bible is translated as creator instead of possessor, and that's because both are implied here. This most high God is the one who created all things, and therefore he owns all things. He possesses all things, and it is this God, the God most high who has blessed Abram, who has provided for him. He sustained him, blessed him. His victory is God's victory. God has provided. This is my father's world. And no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In Psalm 84, that, that very passage, we get the same idea. The psalmist says, for the Lord God is a son, that is, he showers blessing upon his people. The Lord God is a son and a shield. He is a defender of his people. He gives us grace and glory, the psalmist says. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Abraham isn't puffed up with pride for what he's attained. He doesn't say, look at my boldness, look at my courage, look at what I secured. He focuses on God's provision. And so his response is humble faith. He just receives the blessing. Melchizedek wants to pray a blessing over him and he just receives it. A blessing which celebrates God's provision. It's fascinating to me that we are such weak creatures. We begin to think, even the best of us, that it's because of our ingenuity or it's because of our courage or it's because of our strength or it's because of our aligning things rightly or it's because of our faithfulness that God has provided. But what do we have that has not been given to us? What are we but what God has worked in us? What have we achieved but what God has attained for us? Abram understands this. A proud believer is the most grotesque and ugliest of creatures on the face of the earth. Because it makes a mockery of our Father who provides for His people. There is always provision by our Father. 
He has provided, He provides, and He will always provide. And there is rest in living in such knowledge, having that focus before our eyes. That belief allowed Abram to set out from the Ur of Chaldees. It afforded him the grace to allow Lot to choose the best of the land. It gave him the strength to pursue and save his nephew. And now it gives him the resolve to rest under the blessing of God. He knows God provides. And that provision leads to God's plans. So second, let us focus on God's plans. And that combats the pride of place. Abram's blessed. He is standing among kings. And yet he knows that he hasn't arrived. He recognizes his own need for a mediator. This priest king comes to him and Abraham surrenders himself to this priest. Why? Because of the function that priest played and that priest play. Priests present the sins of God's people to God for cleansing and for forgiveness, and they also represent God to the people to convey his blessing. And in this way, priests are a mediator between God and His people. They mediate the covenant that God has made with His people. Now, in his pride, Abram could have had this priest king come to him that is going to offer him this blessing and that he surrenders himself to. And Abram could have said, I am not surrendering myself to you, priest. God speaks to me. Look at me, I am the man of God, I have received blessing upon blessing, I am God's chosen man in this world. But that's not his response. Rather, his response again is humble faith. He understands his need for a mediator, even as one chosen by God, he understands that this is the plan of God. And so we see him pay a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, there is an oddness about Melchizedek, this priest that comes to Abram, that Abram pays a tithe to, that he surrenders himself to. Melchizedek has no beginning in the text. We, we don't hear anything of his parents. We don't know how in the world this man became a priest. Because the priests of God's people came from the line of Levi. And the line of Levi does not exist yet. And so how is this man a priest of God Most High? How is it that Abram can surrender himself to this man? And so some have argued in the history of the church that surely Melchizedek must be a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Son of God. It's what we would call Christophany, that here is the Son of God come down and He has made an appearance as the King of Salem, this King of Righteousness. Though that sounds pretty, I think we have to absolutely reject that view. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear in chapter 7, verse 3. He says there that this man, Melchizedek, quote, resembles the Son of God. He resembles him. That is, they are clearly two separate people. The writer of Hebrews unravels some of the mystery of God's plan here. He mentions Melchizedek to explain the priesthood of Christ. He says, you know, Christ fulfilled and He fulfills the offices, the three offices of the Scriptures, the office of king and the office of prophet and the office of priest. And yet when we get to the office of priest, we have to ask the same question about Jesus. 
How is it that Jesus can be a priest of God? He doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. He comes from the tribe of Judah. And to explain it, the writer of Hebrews looks back to Melchizedek. And he says, look, Melchizedek had no beginning, just as Christ has no beginning. He did not come from the tribe of Levi, just as Christ does not come from the tribe of Levi. In fact, when Abram offers this tithe, he offers it to Melchizedek, and Levi is in the very loins of Abram and offering this tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek precedes the tribe of Levi. Psalm 110 will pick up this idea, prophesied that there would be a king, a ruler whose enemies would all be laid beneath his feet. This was quoted of messianic texts in all of the New Testament, that there would be a king that would rule and reign forever, and this king would also be a priest. He would be a priestly king. And Psalm 110 says that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is, he would have no beginning. But even more, he would have no end, as the writer of Hebrews is pointing out. He's a priest forever. God has from eternity past planned to send a mediator, a perfect mediator for his people, a true king of righteousness who would forever intercede for his people. And this mysterious priest king was but a type. He's but a shadow of the full revelation that would be found in Christ. This has been God's plan. And Abram, though he is favored by God, does not give in to the pride of place. He surrenders himself to this mediator because he recognizes that he is in need of a mediator before God. Even Abram. His response, his humble faith, he tithes. Don't you shirk off the tithe? It is here in the very beginning of Genesis. And it has always been a mark of God's people that they are dependent upon God and that they are surrendering themselves to God and recognize that He is their all in all. And so Abram tithes. It is when we surrender to His plans, when we are least in control, that there is the most freedom. We have a mediator to lean into. We have a mediator to cry out to. We have a mediator that cries out for you. There's refuge under the shadow of his wings. And there is rest there. There's rest when you and I recognize that we are not in control. And we surrender ourselves to the plans of God. There's rest such a focus. Finally, let us focus on God's priorities, which combats the pride of presumption. God's priorities, which combats the pride of presumption. The king of Salem is not the only king in the scene. We're told that the king of Sodom, quote, went out to meet him. And that word, went out to meet him, can have one of two 
interpretations. It can mean that he went out to greet him or that he went out to confront him. And we're to see the latter here in the text, that the king of Sodom has gone out to confront Abram. We see a contrast here. The king of Salem, Melchizedek, has come out with food and wine. It is a way of alluding to the fact that he's come out with a banquet. He is going to celebrate this victory of Abram over these kings. But the king of Sodom doesn't come out giving glory to God, nor to give praise to Abram. He lives up to the reputation of this city. He is earthly-minded. And he says, give me, give me. It's not a greeting, it's a demand. He wants what he has lost. Give me the people. You can have the sheep and the cows, Abram. Give me. Now, there's a temptation here for Abram. And it's the pride of presumption. Did he not earn this? Did he not have a right to it? Maybe. But again, his response is humble faith. He focuses upon God's priorities. He will seek God's glory and man's good. That's the priorities of our God in this world. His glory and man's good. And that's what we see Abram seek here in the text. That's what he focuses on. He will seek God's glory. There's no presumption here. If he took these spoils that the king of Sodom is offering him, it would seem to say that Abram was the victor, that he was somehow deserving, that this was his doing. And Abraham knows that the victory belongs to the Lord. If I have success, it's because it's the Lord's doing. If I've achieved, it's the Lord's doing. All glory be to Christ. So Abram says, I'll take nothing. I'll seek God's glory above all. That will be the focus of my mind. And when you're focused on the glory of God, you are walking in the right way. You are seeing things clearly. And there's such rest in it. I asked uh, this member of our congregation if I could relay this story. He said, oh, please do. But I member of our congregation recently lost his father. And he sat down his daughter to, to tell her that her grandfather had passed away, one of the covenant children of URC. And as he told his daughter that grandpa has passed on and he's gone to heaven, he said that this small child in our congregation, this covenant child, was silent for about 30 seconds. And then she said something along these lines. Oh, Daddy, Grandpa is now looking upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus. One of our covenant children. And then she asked this. She said, Daddy, would you flip open to that Bible passage where Jesus takes the mud and he puts it on the eyes of the blind man and helps him to see? See, she understood. In the mouth of babes, she understood. Her grandfather now 
has clear sight. Because all he has seen is the glory of God. And he has the clearest sight he's ever had. When you and I are focused upon the glory of God, then we are clearly seen. There's rest in that. He not only seeks the glory of God, though, he also seeks man's good. Because this is the other great purpose of God in this world, his glory and man's good. There is, as Bruce Waltke said, a moral ambiguity here. Abram could take, he has a right, he is the victor by God's grace, but Abraham will not presume, he will not be stained with the moral ambiguity of keeping a victim's plunder. He seeks to be above reproach. Why? Because he knows that God provides. And he knows that every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, every good gift. And he doesn't want this king of Sodom to be able to brag that he made Abram rich. That would have great effect upon all those around him. And that matters to Abram because God's purposes in this world include man's good. So. A sad reality, at least from my viewpoint, that we live in a day when too few Christians think too little about living their lives before others and what that looks like. There used to be two great controlling influences upon the Christian's life and the Christian's living. My conscience before the Lord and my impact upon others. Another way of saying it is love towards God and love towards others. To live with God's glory in view and man's good in view is our calling. That's our priority. That's his plan in this world. Would Abram's conscience have been clear taking these goods? Maybe. Except he was concerned for the good of those around him. I say this, my friends, it's not enough that our conscience is clear. That's good, that's necessary, that's essential, but it isn't complete. What I do must be stained with love towards those around us. I want to think about this in two ways this morning. First, we have to be concerned about our witness to outsiders. That is Abram's chief concern here. He says to the king of Sodom, I don't want you to say. As Calvin said, true it is that we shall never be able to escape the bitings and barkings of many dogs. Yes, and although we were without all blot and blemish, yet will they never leave slandering and evil speaking of us. For the Son of God had his part that way, and all the prophets and apostles were also charged with false reports. Calvin saying, look, you can live as holy and godly as you want before the pagan world, and you will still be slandered. You will still be ridiculed. You will still be called a hypocrite. And yet he says this, notwithstanding 
We must, as much as in us we can, not give an occasion to such as hunt after it, but stop their mouths to honor the name of God. The world's constantly watching. And so Calvin concludes this, we owe this duty to our neighbors not to give any offense unto those that are weak, who by us might take any evil example. He's not going to empower his adversaries, these pagans. Second, is surely true as well, we care about the effect upon our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that can be inferred from the text. Abraham is before 318 of his household men. This is all the men in his house. Some slaves, some family members. And what would it look like if he presumed and took this handout from this pagan king and he became rich by his offer? Though it might be allowable, it also might have been a stumbling block to his brothers. And we're to consider our weaker brothers and sisters and make decisions based upon their good. That's to shape what we do. Heard an awful lot about Romans 14 over these past, what, 15 weeks? An awful lot. I've heard a lot in the greater church. I don't have anybody particularly in view because the truth is, Romans 14 has been used on both ends of the spectrum in every single debate the church is having over these last 15 weeks. But it's often used wrongly, Romans 14. I'm pained by how often I hear it used wrongly. And here's how it's used wrongly. I'm the weaker brother. I'm the weaker brother. They need to yield to me. That's not the thrust of Romans 14. Romans 14 is not a sword by which we prod others. It's a shield by which we defend others. It's not requiring others to yield for my good. It is yielding for the good of others that Romans 14 is aimed at. It makes demands upon me. It doesn't provide me fodder to make demands upon others. Demanding is the way of Sodom. The way of Salem is seeking the glory of God and the good of men. And that is the plan of God. And there is such rest in that. Such rest. Rest there is. And not seeking to exalt yourself, but seeking the glory of God. Not seeking to have my way, but seeking to do good to others. There's far less offense. There's far less burden. There's far less empty striving. Far less conflict. Far less jockeying for position. Let me do all things according to conscience with the love of others in the forefront of my mind, giving glory to God and seeking to do good to men. There's great rest. It's a good way to walk. Focus upon God. 
allegiance could either be to Sodom or Salem. It can't be to both. Salem requires humble faith. I wonder where is your focus? Is it distracted? Is it exhausted? Then let's focus. Let's focus on God's provision. Let's focus on God's plan. Let's focus on God's purposes. And let's rest under the shadow of His wing as we do so. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you glory and praise that you are a God who provides for your people, who's provided for your people in an eternal plan of providing a mediator, who provides according to that eternal plan according to your purposes, to give yourself glory and wrapped up in that is our good. Even on our best days, we could not imagine or create something so lovely. Father, help us to rest. To rest in humble faith under the shadow of your wing. Rejoice that you are a God of provision, God of plans, God of purposes. And may we walk in that humble faith as we seek your glory and the good of one another in the church and our neighbors outside the church. Keep us on the way, we pray, undistracted, focused. In Christ's name we pray, amen.